Lord. Well, where we are uh, continuing in this teaching series on the Bible and, uh, and actually continuing specifically right now to take a look at how to read the Bible well. So the series is called Well, called well Read. Last week and this week is called Read Well. And, and, and so we're taking a look. Last week I talked to you a little bit about the importance of reading the Bible in its proper context. This morning I want to talk to you just a bit about how to read the Old Testament. So as we prepare to get into that, um, as we get ready, would you stand with me please as you're able and just kind of get us focused and moving. Once again, we're going to read together or recite together. 2 Timothy 2.15 is a verse we've been working on memorizing together for some time now. 2 Timothy 2.15 together. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord, and, and you may be seated. Now, we keep coming back to this verse kind of as our launching point because of that powerful exhortation to do your best to correctly handle the word of truth. And I pray as we walk through this together that you are strengthening your commitment to do your best to handle the scriptures correctly. So with that in mind, in 2007, A.J. Jacobs released his book, The Year of Living Biblically. I don't know if you've heard of this book or read it or not. Uh, it was a New York Times bestseller. In preparation for the book, he took an entire year and to the very best of his ability, spent that year literally obeying every rule he could find in the Bible. And he found over 700 of them. Now, for this exercise, he drew no distinctions between the rules he found in the Old Testament and the rules he found in the New Testament. So he made a point with equal vigor not to trim the edges of his beard, not to eat cheeseburgers, and to turn the other cheek and forgive whenever people wronged him. Now, as he finished up that year and began to reflect on it in his book, part of his reflection was that, that he found, to be perfectly honest, uh, certain uh, regulations he came across distasteful. But at the same time, to be perfectly honest, he also had to admit that many of the rules he tried to follow, including rules like turning the other cheek and giving thanks in all circumstances, he had to admit that he found those to be deeply moving and even transformative in his own life. In the end, however, the truth is, the adventure only served to do pretty much what I think he anticipated it was going to do from the outset. Namely, it strengthened his belief that certain things in the Bible are silly and certain things in the Bible are very useful. And in spite of his obvious effort to be gracious in those conclusions, those conclusions plainly undermine the notion of the Bible as a divinely inspired book. Now, whatever you might think of A.J. Jacobs and his New York Times bestseller, there's no question that it raises at least two questions. Should there be some sort of distinction between the Old and the New Testament? And if so, on what grounds? Now, if you've ever been stuck in one of those conversations where somebody on one side says, well, the Bible says so-and-so, and somebody on the other side says, yeah, well, the Bible also says you can't wear clothes with two kinds of fabric, then you know there's an actual serious issue here. In fact, one of the biggest points of confusion for many Bible-believing Christians today is what to do with the Old Testament. And the starting point for getting that right 
is to understand that from start to finish, the Bible represents, the Bible presents unfolding revelation. The Old Testament is the Word of God every bit as much as the New Testament is the Word of God, but it was written as unfolding revelation, appropriate to its time and place. And as Scripture continued to be written, more and more revelation was added. In other words, as you make your way through the Bible, you learn more and more along the way each part adding to and building on the parts that came before. And that means your next key to reading the Bible well, your next key to reading the Bible as it was meant to be read is to read it as unfolding revelation. Understanding that what God shared in the very early stages, and as a result, what people understood in the very early stages, was in fact very limited. As Martin, Martin Luther, in explaining the difference between law and gospel, famously said, Moses knows nothing of Christ. Think about it. Abraham, the father of faith, lived 175 years. And during all that time, as far as we know, he only had maybe a couple dozen encounters with God. Abraham had no scripture. He had no pastor. He had no priest. He had no church. He had no indwelling Holy Spirit to help him ascertain the will and the purpose and the heart and the mind of God. You, on the other hand, have all those things. That means unlike Abraham, you actually know on the authority of the Bible that it's a sin to commit adultery. It's a sin to bear false witness, that a soft answer turns away wrath, that the meek will inherit the earth, and that Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Abraham knew none of those things with the authority of Scripture. And this lack of information wasn't limited to Abraham. The truth is, it applied to all the very earliest followers of God. I still remember being shocked. I'll never forget. The first time I really read the account of Rachel, that great matriarch of the faith, stealing her father's household gods, stealing the idols from her home as she ran off with her husband, and then lying about it so she could keep them. I was appalled to find it right there in the Bible. Because you need to remember my point from last week that history is descriptive, not prescriptive. It tells you what happened, not what should have happened. And the truth is, the Old Testament is cram-packed with accounts of God's people doing horrible things they apparently never recognized as horrible. Like the account of Jacob's son, sons uh, uh, tricking a whole town of people into making an alliance with them, convincing the guys to be circumcised, and then while they were recovering from their circumcision, going in and murdering all of them. Or, or the account of Judah sleeping with his daughter-in-law, initially imagining it was okay since he thought she was a prostitute. Are you kidding me? And these are the people of God? 
But I remind you, at that time, they had no Bible. They had no church. They had no indwelling Holy Spirit. They had very little, if anything, to help them know God and the will of God. Even in the New Testament, the revelation continued to unfold. It wasn't until the close of the Gospels, and really sometime after that, that the disciples began to have any sort of a clue about the true mission and identity of Jesus. And you can watch the apostles wrestle with issues throughout the New Testament, developing their theology and altering their views on things like dietary restrictions, the status of Gentiles, Sabbath observance, and much more. That brings me to today's second key for reading the Bible well for reading the Bible as it was written to be read, and it is to read it as unfolding revelation of the unfolding story of God's great work to save and redeem and restore His creation. The Bible tells a story. It tells the story of God and His plan and His work in this world. It is not a book of morals. It is not a book, a collection of doctrines and rules. It is the account of things that really happened and other things that are really going to happen. And just like with any other story, it unfolds and it develops over time as you make your way through the pages. Understanding that is crucial to reading the Bible as it was written to be read. Because the truth is, much of the story is past. We've moved on from the earlier chapters to the later chapters. The earlier chapters matter immensely, and they were just as much from God as the later chapters or the chapters in which we find ourselves in now. But to carry on in this chapter, as if you were still living in an earlier chapter, is to dishonor the entire story. Imagine, for example, if in the last chapter of the Lord of the Rings, standing on the very edge of Mount Doom, Frodo looked at the ring and decided he needed to go to Rivendell to find out where it came from and what it was for. That would be crazy. The entire story would collapse. In fact, the entire story, three books at that point, would have been wasted. An unfolding story must carry on, advancing from what's gone on before without going back to it. That means we're not free to ignore what's been or to try to create a brand new story But we also must keep moving forward, must carry on with the story in ways that are appropriate to this point in the story. So the Bible, then, is the unfolding story of God's unfolding work to redeem and restore His creation. And as with any story, that unfolding story of God occurs in successive chapters or acts. Once Jesus rose from the dead, the page was turned 
in the story. And nothing would ever be the same again. But that plainly raised some questions. How were God's people to move on from there? How were they to honor the past, the story that had been written up to that point, while now moving forward into the story as it was still being written? That was a huge question for the very first followers of Jesus. It remains a huge question for many Christians today. For example, with those very first followers of Jesus, the Old Testament commanded animal sacrifices. And according to the Bible, one of the, things we know, one of the very first things we know happened after Jesus was born was that Mary and Joseph went to Jerusalem and offered a sacrifice of two birds, just like the law commanded them to. But with the resurrection of Jesus, the disciples stopped participating in that God-commanded, biblically-commanded sacrificial worship system. They stopped. But on what grounds? The answer is they stopped on the grounds that Jesus had advanced the story so that those other sacrifices were no longer needed. And so in the book of Hebrews, the author writes of Jesus, first he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am, I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And you really need to notice those last few words. Jesus set aside the earlier. And that understanding was the theological basis on which the very first followers of Jesus, the apostles, began to sort through the Old Testament writings to determine which no longer applied in this new chapter in the story. The process was long, it was hard, it was painstaking, and it was controversial. God had to speak to Peter through a vision three times just to get him to be willing to share the gospel with a group of Gentiles. And when those Gentiles believed the gospel and were filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter was criticized by his fellow believers. The reason he was criticized is clear. The question, what to do with the Gentiles, was really the question, what to do with the Bible. And all of those Old Testament regulations related to the Gentiles. Listen, the apostles believed unswervingly that the Old Testament was God's written word given to His people. But from the moment Jesus returned from the dead, they began to read it in a new way, recognizing that Jesus, in Jesus, the story had moved on. So that some parts of the Old Testament were no longer applicable in their lives. Not because they were bad, not because they were uh, 
not really from God, but because they belonged to a part of the story that had now been completed. Because Jesus had come and fulfilled that part of the story, completed that part of the story. And here's a big concept you need to get. Jesus didn't come to abase the Scriptures. Jesus came to fulfill the Scriptures. That's what He said. He explained it in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 17, Do not think, Jesus said, that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The Greek verb here translated fulfill literally means to fill up or to complete entirely. So Jesus didn't just obey Scripture. He completed it. Many people read these words in Matthew chapter 5, and they take them to mean that Jesus obeyed everything in the Bible. And there's some truth to that, although I do think it is worth noting that most of the law and the prophets simply cannot be obeyed. And they cannot be obeyed because they're narrative. They tell the story of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Abraham and Sarah. They tell the story of Joseph in Egypt and Moses in the wilderness, of Korah's rebellion and of Balaam's donkey. In other words, most of the New Testament is telling the story of God and the people of God and God's work in and with and through and for those people, which means there's really nothing there to obey. And while Jesus did obey everything in the Old Testament that could be obeyed, that's not what he meant here in Matthew 5.17. Jesus didn't come to obey the Scripture. He came to fulfill it. He came to complete it. He came to fully accomplish the work those Scriptures had been given to reveal. And so Jesus is the climax of that part of the story, the part dedicated to national Israel and its unique mission from God to embody the kingdom righteousness of God and to share it in the world. Jesus did that perfectly. So that part is no longer left to be done. Jesus clearly saw himself in the role of fulfilling Old Testament Scripture, completing Old Testament Scripture, and ushering in a new chapter in the unfolding story of God. That's the essence of what the writer of Hebrews meant when he wrote, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, and many times and in various ways. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. Literally in Greek, spoken to us in His Son. Jesus is the message. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10, the writer goes on, speaking of Old Testament rituals and sacrifices, he writes, they're only a matter of food and drink and ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. You need to catch those words as well. They clear until the time of the new order. They clearly indicate that parts of the Old Testament only applied for a season, only applied until the story progressed, 
only applied until Jesus completed them and brought in the time of the new order. The story has moved on so that some of what governed behavior in the previous chapters no longer is meant to govern behavior in the current ones. It's still Bible. It's still in the Bible. It's still God-breathed. But it is no longer binding at this point in the story. As a result, the parts of the Old Testament that reflect God's moral law remain fully in force. Love is still the rule and the goal of the kingdom. Love God and love people has not changed. And love does no harm to its neighbor. As a result, you are still forbidden to lie or cheat or murder or steal or slander or backbite or commit adultery. But those rules that governed the nation of ancient Israel or that governed religious Judaism are no longer binding on you. So you are now free to eat pork chops and shrimp. And you are no longer obligated to execute someone for cursing their mother. This, because you used to be. This was the general conclusion of the apostles in Acts chapter 15 at the first ever church council in Jerusalem where they decided against those who stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. But please, please do not miss this. They did not merely decide that the Gentile Christians did not have to be circumcised. They also decided they did not have to obey the law of Moses. That is, they did not have to obey the parts of the Old Testament in the Bible, breathed out by God himself, that applied just to the Jews or to the nation of Israel. And they came to that conclusion because Jesus had moved the story into a brand new chapter. As Peter noted at that very council, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. In other words, Peter was saying, Jesus makes all the difference, and he has now advanced the story. So in conclusion, yes, the Old Testament is part of the Bible. Yes, it's good and true and God-breathed. But most of the people who lived in that era knew very little of God and the will of God, especially compared to what you know. And many of the regulations that help build their identity and order their lives are no longer needed for that purpose. Now that Jesus has come, completed that part of the story, poured out the Holy Spirit, and birthed the church. And so, we love and trust and honor the Bible as the unfolding revelation of the unfolding story of God's great work to save and redeem and restore His creation, His original kingdom 
vision. And understanding that unfolding story will help you read the Bible correctly and will help you find your proper place in that story today. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for the power and the clarity of your word. Your word, which does not contradict itself, even when parts of the New Testament contravene parts of the Old. Lord, your word, which shows us your unfolding, the unfolding story of your great plan to restore creation to your original creation vision. That one day, soon, Jesus will return. There will be a new heaven and a new earth a merged heaven and earth where you dwell directly among your people. You will be our God and we will be your people. We'll have new bodies and we'll live with you forever in that world as you intended it to be. Lord, help us look forward to that day even while we live in this one as faithful servants of you and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah.